All right, Micah, thank you. Right. So the, our first question is, what's your bracelet? Oh, my bracelet. This say, Okay, I love this bracelet. Um, this says Daddy on it. Aww. Yeah, this was, uh, this was a Christmas present, uh, 10 and 14. So this is my youngest daughter, Shiloh, uh, who made this for me. And um, so, yeah, I've been, I've been uh, wearing it uh, almost every day since she made it for me. So this is... Uh, that's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Uh, random, but I, I realized slash learned that, um, so I worship at Trinity Pres in Charlottesville, and your yeah. bride came and did a conference at Trinity not too long ago. Yes. A few years ago, yeah. Yes, that's, that's Ben right. Melchers, who's also says, his wife was at Trinity. He's like, oh, my God, I never made that connection. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, so, okay, here's our, our first one. These are two very similar questions, so I'm hoping that you guys will realize that because um, I'm only going to ask one of them. Is this um, about my bracelet? No, this is not about your bracelet. <laughs> okay. Uh, what is your shoe? No, oh. uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How do we love our diverse neighbor as a church that is 99% white in a primarily white suburban culture? Mm. Another similar question was about, you know, how do we practically day-to-day live that out kind of in a culturally homogenous community? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> so how do we love our diverse neighbors if our neighborhood is not uh, is not diverse. Okay, um, one thing we can do. So, so first of all, I love it that you all know that we should love our diverse neighbors. Praise the Lord. That's that's step number one. Okay, um, the catholicity of the church um, means the universality. It means that we. I remember I mentioned earlier about uh, John saw people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Uh, you know, it's interesting that the Lord. Uh, the scripture says, God announced the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed, right? That's interesting that God included this notion of all the nations, this cross-cultural mission in his announcement of the gospel beforehand to Abraham, right? Um, it's in, even in John three sixteen, right? That sort of classic, uh, you know, gospel passage that, uh, you know, Billy Graham said at every, you know, revival, right? For God so loved the world. Right, that he gave his only begotten son, right? So in the gospel, we do have this fundamental um, intrinsic uh, scope to reach out to all kinds of people. And so any faithful church is going to have to have a global vision and a cross-cultural vision, even if it doesn't have a cross-cultural makeup and a cross-cultural neighborhood. And so it's going to have to, it's going to, it's going to need to find ways um, to pray for and to support believers in other places. You think about this. Um, you think about uh, the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul is a, as, a, uh, as, a, as an apostle and church planter. What he would often do is he, he would go around to some churches, and you remember he was collecting an offering to support the church in Jerusalem. And he went to other churches that weren't near Jerusalem, churches that didn't have Jewish members, that had only Gentile members, and yet he collected an offering on behalf of Christians living in Jerusalem, right? And so they had a vested interest in the, in the, in the sufferings, the joys, the well-being of brothers and sisters in other places, okay? And so uh, as a church that, that, is, that may be 99% white in a, in, a, in a homogenous neighborhood or area, um, you, you, you need to cultivate opportunities to learn about and to support believers in other places. You can do that um, by, in multiple ways. You can do that by um, cultivating friendships with other churches and other church leaders, uh, other community leaders, okay? Um, interestingly enough, a lot of times, um, okay, so I'll give you an example. Um, so the church that I uh, pastor is um, a church that's in 83% black neighborhood. Okay, I pastor a church called Koinonia, which is in Bordeaux, Nashville, which is in northwest Nashville. But, um, uh, I, but our church is a multi-site church, which means we have, uh, so we are one location, but there's four Christ Presbyterian church locations. There's, there's one in Cool Springs, Nashville. There's one in Music Row, and then there's one in Brentwood. And the one in Brentwood, uh, you know, I've heard people say on occasion, but we're in Brentwood. We're in a suburb of Nashville, and it's mostly white, and you know, I don't know. I mean, how, do you expect us to, you know, I mean, how diverse can we be? Because we're in Brentwood, right? And um, it's interesting. Um, and now, in Brentwood, there are actually black churches, 
Okay? Because <laughs> you know what? Black people travel to go to church. They do. They, they travel to go to church. And, um, and, and, and if they feel welcomed, guess what? They will travel to go to your church. They really will. Um, just the same way you, may, you would be willing to travel to go to a church if you felt like there's something about Jesus that I'm seeing here that I, I, don't, I, I don't see in anywhere else. I'm going to come here. You know, I tell people all the time, I say, hey, you know, people throw, uh, people throw time, talent, and treasure at Jesus. Wherever they see Jesus, they are going to throw their time and their talent and their treasure if they really see him, right? And so, uh, so I, I would say if you, re, you know, I would say for, for any church that finds itself in a setting that if you find yourself in a community that is truly, truly uh, 99% white, uh, then, you know, again, there's, you know, there's, um, there's missions, there's, um, um, there's opportunities to, when I say missions, I mean like, I mean home missions, right? Not just foreign missions. Yeah, like you're, exactly. I don't mean, so, so sometimes when I talk about cross-cultural ministry and I say missions, people think Africa, okay? And I'm talking about across the Across the city, okay. <laughs> well, I, well, I'm talking about home missions, okay. Because, and I'm not saying that overseas missions is not important, but you know, there are some people, there's some believers, or some, or some neighbors that are just right around you, you know. And um, if you live in a neighborhood that is, say, uh, you know, 80% white and say 20% black, then you know you still are responsible for how you relate to that 20% of people. God is holding you responsible for that, you know, and whether or not you're going to be welcoming or not, okay? And so just, you know, I would cultivate opportunities to, to, to do that. Here's another thing you need to be thinking about. Um, being a just person is not just for people of color. It is for you as well, okay? It is for you. It is, it is to make you more like Jesus, Okay, um, if you think that, well, you know, these aren't conversations that we really need to have because black folks aren't here or black folks aren't around here. Right. Then you will just go on your way having a certain attitude and belief and posture about those things. And guess what? God sees that. God sees that. And God sees that un that unwittingly we oftentimes pass that along to our children and our children pass that along to their children. And the Lord sees that. Okay. And so. He, he is inviting us to learn more about who he is. Here's another thing that you can do. You can cultivate a library of people that have a different perspective than you have. Remember, um, remember uh, that, that, the wisdom from Proverbs that I mentioned about listening to the, you know, the instruction of your father and the teaching of your mother, right, all of that. Uh, and, and, and having to having to listen to people from that, that have a different, um, you know, social experience than you do. You know, um, it's interesting that um, that God names himself as the God of the widow, the God of the sojourner, the God of the orphan. Right? He names himself that. Right. Um, because he knows that if he does not do that, his people are going to forget the widow, the sojourner and the orphan. He knows that. And so he has to say, hey, I'm their God. And so, if, and he says that if they cry out to me, it's, a, it's amazing. God actually kind of sort of threatens his people. He says, look, if, they, if you neglect them and they cry out to me, I'm going to do the same thing to you that I did to those Egyptians when you cried out to me. Right? And so um, that means God is serious about it. And that means what we've got to do is we've got to find the widows, the sojourners, the orphans in our communities, right? The poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized, we've got to find them and we've got to listen to their experiences. We've got to cultivate a library that helps us to learn from them, okay? And that helps us to, to grow. And so, yeah, so grow your library that, uh, in ways that helps you learn from their experiences and in ways that help you see things in the Bible, that you otherwise would not see. There's some things that there are people, there's some things that, that women, I'm going to say this again, there's some things that women are going to see in the Bible 
that the Holy Spirit will use the experiences, the thoughts, the, the, the particular situation of women to allow them to see some things in the Bible that we, that we brothers just will not see. And if you don't believe me, you go and you look at the situation with the woman at the well. You know, I, I read a lot of male commentaries, a lot of male commentaries about John chapter 4 and about Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. And a lot of them say things like, well, you know, when Jesus points out that, she, you know, she's uh, had five husbands and the man that she's with is not her husband, you know, it's, well, you know, Jesus is kind of, you know, he's convicting her of sin. And it took a female commentary, a woman from Wheaton, to say, uh, you know, in the first century, women couldn't sue for divorce. So this woman actually didn't have agency. She didn't have agency. What she was, was she was thrown aside time and time and time again. And the man that she was currently with would not even dignify her with the position of wife. So she was being used and exploited. And when Jesus pointed that out, he is, he is, he is expressing compassion for her situation. Nobody else saw her in that state, and Jesus expresses compassion. And it took, it took a sister to see that, okay? It took a sister to see that. The Holy Spirit using a sister, opening her eyes to see that, right? The Holy Spirit, is, it's amazing because God hasn't given one gender all the gifts. Amen. <laughs> God in his wisdom gives it out to all his people so that we need, remember I said we can't do this without each other. We need one another, okay? All right, so I'm going to, let's go to the next That's question. awesome. That's good stuff. Yeah, just key things in there that, that jump out at me. So often in the church, we, we have an idea to go and do something to love someone. We think program, like what can we go and do? And it's like yeah. you're hearing, hey, go meet someone. Yeah. Listen, learn, learn and, yeah. and start with start with what we believe because I believe that this is who God is and who I am and what I'm, he says about me. I want to I know my neighbor, learn, listen, go yeah. slow. Right. Anyway, good stuff. Um, so, all righty. These are... Well, anyway, how do we enter into the dialogue of disunity, injustice, etc., without isogeting it or turning it into a gospel hobby horse? Mm. I think that you're feeling some of the, the tone of that, I think. Okay. Uh, well, okay. Uh, how do we enter into this conversation uh, in a way that does not, I want to make sure I understand, that, that doesn't kind of turn it into sort of like a hobby? Um, is, that, is, that, is that the notion that this is sort of, something on the side, or is that the notion that we are entering this in a prideful way? I just want to make sure I understand the, the heart of the question. Like, like that we're not reading it into places that doesn't appropriately, appropriately belong in Scripture. Okay. That we're not like, they don't like hear, hear me get up and be like, oh, he's going to be talking about race again. You know? Like, okay. Yeah. Okay. How do we do it appropriately and, and well? Okay. <laughs> yes. Great question. Great question. Um, I think that what we want to do um, is we want to speak on issues of race, class, gender, where the Bible does. Okay? I think that the issue is that oftentimes we are surprised how much the Bible has to say about this. Um, the Bible is oftentimes saying things about, about culture that where, where we just, you know, we just run straight past it and don't even, don't even realize. You think about this. Think about, um, think about, think about David and Bathsheba, okay? And think about the way in which, um, you know, so you remember David, you remember Bathsheba's husband, right? You remember his name was? Aha. And the Bible won't let us forget that Uriah was a Hittite. Why? Why does the Bible keep telling us this was Uriah the Hittite, Uriah the Hittite, Uriah the Hittite? Because, you're, because the Hittites were a particular ethnic group of people that were Gentiles, okay? And, and, and here's a man that came to faith in the God of Israel. And not just that, he came to faith in the God of Israel, and he was intensely loyal to the king, a person that was in a different culture from him, a person that was in the group of people that would have... Uh, uh, in the, you know, in the conquest, would have annihilated the Hittites. So here's a man that has so much faith in the God of Israel that he's following uh, a king that's in a different culture, the culture that would have been considered the oppressor culture, okay? 
And, and because he is marginalized, because he's a, a, an ethnic other, that's why David can steal from him and get him killed. And the Bible is letting us know that. It's warning us about that. And that's why it says over and over again, he was a Hittite. He was a Hittite. He was a Hittite. Okay. Now, um, you know, how many times have you heard that story or told and nobody ever brought up the fact that Uriah was a Hittite? But it's there the whole time. It's there all the time. Um, here's another thing. Uh, I, just, I just preached a sermon this, this past week on, um, from Mark chapter 14 on, on Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay? So, so people come to Jesus, and they're going to, they're going to arrest him. Right? Judas has betrayed him. He, he betrays him with a kiss. Here's, here comes a mob to arrest Jesus. And Jesus points out something. Jesus said, you've come to me with swords and clubs as if I were an insurrectionist. But I was daily with you in the temple, and you didn't seize me. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus point that out? Well, what is he talking about here? Well, is this just an interesting part of the story? It is an interesting part of the story. But Jesus is also pointing out the disproportionate use of force by the arresting authorities. Isn't he? Isn't he? You, you, and you convinced me that he's not talking about that. Jesus is saying what is happening to me is unjust. Because you remember Isaiah 52 said that he would be taken by judgment and oppression. So Isaiah foretold that the suffering of the Messiah that he would experience would be in a, a form of injustice. And when they come to arrest him, Jesus points it out. Jesus said this is a disproportionate use of force. But how many times have you read that or heard that story and you didn't see that? But it's right there, isn't it? I mean, it's so clear. You can't even deny it. It's so clear. It's right there. Right? So, so, so the Bible is often talking about these things. Um, and it takes, again, it takes the Holy Spirit to lift up people that might be vulnerable to the disproportionate use of force to see it. To say, hey, that's, that's good news for me. If Jesus bore that in his suffering, that means that he will heal it, right? And that's good news for people like me. Yeah. All right? All right. It's good stuff. A uh, little shift of gears. Um, I'm curious about this question, uh, what you have to say about it. Is there a kind of nationalism that is good? Okay. Is there a kind of nationalism that is good? Um, so... Um, I th so it depends on what you mean by nationalism. Yeah, I suspected it. Yeah, it depends on really on what you mean by nationalism. Um, I mean, unless if you're if you're the kind of person that's just like I really need to hold on to this label, you know, or is is it somebody like just really I am uh, I am just dedicated to this label so much I need to redeem some kind of form of nationalism. Um, <laughs> You know, I think um, I think that nationalism oftentimes favors the nation state as the ultimate goal above all else, and says, "I will do whatever it takes to secure the success of the nation state." Okay, and you know, Jesus and and nationalism has been a very old um, way of relating. Right. Because what people believe is they believe my safety is in the success of the nation state. My security, my identity is in the success of the nation state. And the thing is, is that oftentimes the nation state will demand things of us, call things of us, require things of us that actually um, are contrary to God's word. Right. And so what God says is that I'm going to give you a new allegiance, okay? And whatever you do for the nation, right, has to ultimately answer to my goal, right? So this comes to light in the question over paying taxes to Caesar, right? Um, and they come to Jesus, and they, and they basically put this question to him. They say, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
And this is a, this is a kind of dichotomy that they're putting Jesus in, right? Because um, the, the poll tax uh, is not just general taxes. It, it, what they're talking about specifically was the poll tax. And the poll tax was a tax that was connected with a particular, um, with a particular insurrection, right? The poll tax was a tax that the, the Roman Empire levied upon its conquered citizens in order to know how many citizens they had within the kingdom and, and in order to also to support um, the various, you know, wars and things that Rome wanted to carry out. And it became, and for, for the Jews now, this became a symbol of subjugation and oppression for them, right? It had Caesar's um, image on it, and for them, every time they paid the poll tax, it was like a salt in the wound, okay? And, um, and basically, they all got together, and they decided, we're not going to pay this poll tax, and we're going we're gonna to actually, um, we're going to mount an insurrection, okay? And the insurrection uh, was put down, uh, but there was a group that came out of that insurrection known as the Zealots, okay? And I mean, you all heard me mention Simon the Zealot. And so, so you had the zealots on the one hand, and the people, the masses, were with the zealots. The masses, they weren't zealots, but they were like, hey, but we understand. You know, like, I'm not going to take up guns, but I get it. Like, I understand, you know, if I, <laughs> you know. So the masses were kind of with the zealots. And then you had, on the other hand, the people that were all about, you know, um, all about power, all about position, you know. And they were all about paying taxes to Caesar because they were getting a cut of what Caesar was getting. So you had... You had the zealots on the one hand, and you had the, you know, the Sadducees and the you know, folks that were kind of in line in league with the, uh, with the empire on the other. And they tried to get Jesus to side with one or the other. Right? Should we do it or not? Because if you say that we shouldn't pay them, then you're going to be arrested as an insurrectionist and a zealot. But if you say we should, then you're going to lose your following because the crowd is going to say you're a sellout. So what's it going to be, Jesus? So you can see how they're really trying to set him up, right? Jesus gives them an answer that actually transcends the categories, right? Because they didn't, they didn't realize that you could actually work through um, your government obligation to actually serve God, right? And so, uh, so he says, uh, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give to God the things that are God's. Now, you know, this coin had an image of Caesar on it, right? So give to Caesar the things that has Caesar's image on it, but give to God the things that have God's image on it. And what has God's image on it? All of us, right? All of us. And so all you do, right, comes, all, everything you do, your civic responsibility, your marriage, your, uh, your education, everything about you, right, all that is accountable to God. Right. The Roman Empire had it exactly reversed. The Roman Empire said you could do your own religion. You can do whatever you want to do as long as you bow the knee to Caesar. And Jesus says, no, whatever you do for Caesar is really service to God. Right. So whatever you do, uh, let it be. Let it be accountable. God nationalism. um, Nationalism tries to make the state ultimate. Christianity makes the kingdom of God ultimate. Yeah, amen. Amen. Remember what kingdom we belong to. That's right. That's right. Uh, so this is a great question. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. So teenagers are a part of the most diverse generation. Yeah. Uh, many of them are advocates of racial reconciliation only to get opposition from their parents or misinformation. I'm adding that to the question from their parents. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we as youth workers pastor these students and parents when there's such a generational disconnect? Okay. Okay. So... Yeah, so is is so it sounds like the question is I want to make sure I understand the question. It sounds like the question is um that that um the next generation, children, youth, are uh are engaging in a more diverse world and that um that they that there's a kind of a disconnect between their um kind of their kind of social outlook and their parents' social outlook and how do these things come together is that the question yeah and how what would it look like for us as as leaders because we often get caught in the middle of that of that gap on a number of issues but this particular one in in particular Mm, you know uh, yeah yeah well i think that um i think that as i think that as as um i think that our calling 
is to call people to more faithful Christ-likeness. I think it's our calling, right? I mean, I, I think that we do, what we don't want to do is, you know, we don't want to, you know, create tension in families, right? But, but we want to call people to Christ-like service. And sometimes that will create tensions in families. <laughs> and Jesus said, Jesus himself says this, doesn't he? Yeah. Jesus himself says that, uh, that, that uh, they're going to be, you know, yeah, yeah, he says it exactly that, that they're going to be fathers and mothers. You know, they're going to be parents to turn against their children. They're going to be, you know, that, that he's going to, he says, look, if it comes down between keeping your family together and keeping your soul together, please keep your soul together. He lets us know that very clearly, right? Um, and he tells us that sometimes you're going to have to leave some things behind for the sake of following him. But he says, just keep on following me. Keep on following me. I, should, I would say this. I believe we want to be very, very careful with, um, I believe we want to disciple people the best we can to look more like Jesus. And I think, we want, I think part of that means that we disciple them to honor their father and mother, right? And also to recognize that their father and mother are also sinners in need of grace and that they're sinners in need of grace and never to look down on their father and mother even where they might disagree, even where they might think that I see my parents in some hypocrisy, not to sort of see the speck in their parents' eye but ignore the log in their own eye and to recognize that we're all prone to do that. We're all prone, especially, uh, especially when we look at authority figures or when we look at our parents. You know, this is kind of... Um, that's just kind of what it, that's just kind of part of what it is growing up, you know. What it, I mean, every kid thinks they know more than their parents, you know. That's just that's just part. Of what, that's why we need a command, you know. Why would God say honor your father and mother unless people were prone not to do it, you know? Unless <laughs> people are like, I don't want to do this, you know. Um, so, I, but I think we want to disciple them in humility. I think we want to disciple them, uh, but I do think we want to. Um, I help them to see all the Bible says around those issues, though. And because uh, we don't have, here's the thing, what a lot of Christians don't understand is that we have the freedom and liberty to disagree about how we apply justice, but we don't have the freedom and liberty to disagree about justice itself. We really don't. We really don't. I mean, we can disagree where the Bible doesn't speak, but we can't disagree where the Bible does. And the Bible speaks a whole lot about that. So we need to disciple our children the best we can. And, and, that, and like, like I said, that means humility as well. That means empathy as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah, that's good. And I think we all know that, um, and I'm right now thinking of one of my children in particular, all three of my kids who are mm. teenagers-ish, but like they're, the access to so many voices on all these issues, it's easy to get really passionate about causes and stuff. And, mm -hmm. and it's easy to also feel like, well, there's no way I can get them to approach them differently but like we have the opportunity to shape and form their engagement or at least speak into it and that's where I say teach humility teach them what the scriptures have to say yeah and uh wouldn't you guys have seen it a lot of times kids have had uh you know the kids have led the parents um in a number of ways sometimes yeah. and we can do that also in a way of humility like you said it's not the parents are awful so we're gonna subversively attack but uh we're gonna you know yeah. There's a little bit of diversity in youth ministry. But, that, that Psalm uh, 133, I think it's amen. important to teach, you, teach that to kids as well. Absolutely. Say, hey, look, you know, it's good to dwell together in unity with your parents mm -hmm. that love the Lord. That's right. That might be, they might not, uh, you know, they, they might be, uh, the, his, the, his, this may be a legitimate blind spot for them, totally. you know. But, hey, we are, we, we are on the way, all of us. Amen. We all got, we don't, here's the thing about, about, about us. Jesus is always forgiving more sin than we know. He just is, you know. <laughs> I, um, my first degree is in applied physics. I did a little bit of work in, um, I did a little bit of work in, I did a little bit of doctoral work in, in, the, in the field of astronomy before I went over into physics, okay. I'll, I'll, I only mention that to say that I, I, one thing I do remember from my astronomy days is that um, the, the amount of the world, the universe, that we can actually see is really, really small. Like, you know, like th cosmologists and physicists, like when they talk about all the 
stuff about the universe, they're really only talking about like 4%. And they say, you know, this other 96%, we just going to call it dark matter. We don't know what's going on, you know. <laughs> we know it's there. They write books but about it. We don't know what's going on. And I think our Christian life, I think our Christian life is like that. I think Jesus only allows us, to, he will open our eyes to say, we, we look at the sins of our, in our life and we say, man, oh, we have a moment of conviction. Man, I'm seeing some stuff. But you know what? Jesus sees all the dark matter. He sees all of that stuff. And he is so gracious and compassionate with us. He's walking with us, and he knows our mess and our junk. And he still loves us, and he still is with us, and he is still united to us by faith. And he is not telling us, hey, because you people got sin, I'm not going to be joined to you. No, he's united to us by faith. He's, he is unashamed to be called our brother. Think about that. that. Jesus is not ashamed of us. So how can we be ashamed of others? How can we be ashamed of our parents if Jesus is not ashamed of us? So I just think that's the kind of attitude that we got to cultivate. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good word. Thanks, brother. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, this would be a little bit of a curveball, but um, in terms of not just ask the question, Michael. Moving on. They're used to this. I have a lot of self-talk. It's, right, it's quite all disturbing. Right. It's all right. Um, can you tell us about a time when you changed your mind slash perspective on something or your mind was changed on something? Yes, absolutely. Um, so, my, so I changed my mind quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> Man, you, you know, you really have to to be a Christian, right? Because repentance is part of this Christianity thing, right? Uh, uh, you know, repentance, metanoia, right? Uh, it doesn't just mean a... It doesn't, it doesn't just mean a change of mind. It literally means an afterward perspective. That's what metanoia means, an afterward perspective or an afterward mind. It means that, you know, you've seen something so amazing that everything else, that you, that you can't unsee it. I've seen this and I cannot unsee it. It changes everything else, okay? And, and what that does is it, it causes us to look at a lot of things new, you know. If you hadn't changed your mind about anything, I mean, have you had an encounter with Jesus, you know? Because every time, you know, you hear the gospel and it's applied in some convicting ways, I believe we ought to be shifting and changing to be, look more like Jesus and to have our, our mind renewed, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, I think walking with one of the blessings, one of the great blessings of my life is being, uh, this year, May 19th, my wife and I will be celebrating 20 years of marriage. I thank the Lord for that. Praise the Lord. 20 years. Praise God. Uh, and, um, and she has been so gracious and kind and compassionate and patient with me throughout these 20 years. And um, she has walked with me around, particularly around issues of gender and seeing things that our sisters experience and, and empathizing with things that our sisters experience um, that we might not necessarily immediately know, you know? Um, you know, um, issues around whether or not, so, and, and, the, and the fact that now I have daughters um, make me, makes me, you know, that I'm a husband, that I'm a, a son of a mother, that I'm, um, you know, that, that I have daughters, and I have a whole bunch of sisters in Christ and a whole bunch of neighbors that are women. All of those things help me to, to see um, that these, th these issues are my issues. These issues are really important, you know, uh, because, because, they, because they have a stake in them. So I would say issues around, issues around gender and, and women's marginalization in society, in meetings, the way oftentimes, um, you know, uh, women's voices can be silenced in meetings, you know. Um, women can be overlooked for positions of, in positions of, of, of authority um, and, and these kinds of things. Um, issues of women's safety, how women feel when they get on an elevator with all men and they have to sort of think twice about that, you know? And those are the kinds of things that brothers, if, if, if a sister didn't say it to you, you just may not even realize that. You know, you may not even realize that. You know, but it gives us, it, cu it cultivates within us a real... Uh, again, sensitivity to, 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 the, to the position 
of, uh, of someone else. You think about this. Um, it, I think it's interesting. I think it is significant, actually, that Jesus' primary Bible teacher in his incarnation was a woman. It was his mother. It really was. I mean, you know, Joseph is there at the beginning. But he, but he passes off the scene pretty quickly, doesn't he? I know that it was his mother because, you know, we have, we have the Magnificat. We have when Mary hears about this news of the coming Messiah that will be born through her, she, she draws back on Hannah's prayer, and she offers these amazing themes about, um, about, about the people on the bottom being brought to the top and, and, uh, and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and those are the, some of the same themes you hear actually coming out in Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes. And, and, you know, people don't know what to do with that stuff. You know, why, where, you know, and I know, I know some people, are, what are, you, are you saying that Jesus learned something from his mother? Yes. Are you saying he learned something from the Bible from his mother? Yes, I am. Come on, listen, if you're not willing to admit that, then you're not willing to accept his incarnation. Right? Right? I mean, that's just, you know, because, um, and the Bible says it. He grew in wisdom. He grew in wisdom. <laughs> well, how did he grow in wisdom? He learned it from his mama. <laughs> and in stature and in favor with God and men. He did. He learned the Bible at the knee of his mother. Right? And he, and he obeyed the scriptures to, to, you know, to not neglect the teaching of his father or the instruction of his mother. He fulfilled those things. He listened to Mary teach him the Bible. And he learned those lessons, and he applied them. He applied them. Even in his, in his public teaching, he applied them. So, um, who are we not to listen to, sisters? If the Son of God did it. (laughs) So I listen to my wife, amen, listen to my mama, I listen to my daughters. They've got some things to share with me that I I wish, you know, that I can, uh, so so that's something I've changed my mind about, yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, and remove uh, the other gender and insert another kind of key piece and just listen and learn. There's so many other, like it could be, you know. It could be a whole host of things. Perspective. could be a whole host of things, um, yeah. So good. But I appreciate that. And amen, my wife has done the same. Um, Well, we're going to, coming up on time, uh, we're over time that we thought we'd even be with you. And uh, I suspect you may have told said bride and family that you would be returning at a certain time. Um, So we want to shut this down and get you on your way. Uh, but a couple things I just wanted to say uh, before kind of finishing with a thank you. Um, there are some more ways you can check out resources that Micah has um, shared with the world. Um, you'll find him write some articles and some recordings and stuff on the Gospel Coalition website. And TGC, he's done some stuff with those guys. Um, uh, other, other, other kind of web places we can go to find things uh, that you may be putting out there? Yeah, um, so I've done some things for The Witness um, if you all have ever heard of a conference called Together for the Gospel, I've been featured there. Okay. Um, and um, yeah, and then and certainly you can go on our on our website. The church I pastor is Koinonia, and um, if you search cpcoinonia.org, then um, you know then lots of sermons and stuff will, will, will come up. Awesome. Um, but yeah, certainly the Gospel Coalition, ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberties. Um, commission with with Dr. Russell Moore. I've been I've been featured there as well. So. Cool, that's great. And uh, he re- recommended a book that is on Ken's table called "Divided by Faith." So there are some titles of that if you want to check that out and give it a look. And and again, it'd be easier for Ken to go home because he won't have to pack it up, and you can take it home. Um, mm-hmm. But those are that's another book you could check out. Um, and uh, some of I heard some pod people talking here. I'm going to follow up with Micah on this one, but some other folks have asked about like podcasts and other places of other other voices you're saying, you know, what voices are shaping you. Yeah. You're welcome to, to, to shout out a couple real quick if you want, but if not, I was going to follow up and provide them in a follow-up email to everybody. Sure, sure. I, I can shout out a couple. Um, yeah. So so Corey Little Edwards is one that you want to check out. Corey Little Edwards, she is a, um, she's a dear sister in the Lord, just so wise. She is actually a sociologist at Ohio State. Who wrote a book called? All right, they wrote a book called "The Elusive Dream." The Elusive Dream. Um, it's a great read. It's called "The Elusive Dream: The Power of Race in Multiracial Churches," 
And um, she has got a podcast. Um, if you can also follow her on Twitter, um, that's great. Um, of course, um, my wife's uh, my, my wife puts out. You know, she's got a podcast called Truth's Table. If you have not heard Truth's Table, that's a wonderful, amazing podcast that um, just has given a lot of wisdom to a lot of people. Um, of course, Pass the Mic with Jamar Tisby and Tyler Burns. That's another one that you may want to be listening to if you're not. Um, to get, uh, you know, perspective on, on some things. Um, so, uh, I mean, those are some of the just kind of ones right off the top. Um, I think the AND campaign also has a podcast. I mean, the AND, the AND campaign, if you've never heard of Justin Gibney, uh, he is uh, an attorney and he's a wonderful, you know, just advocate for justice uh, in our day and, and just, you know, another person that's really applying uh, his faith to the issues of justice in our day. And uh, he really, the AND campaign really strikes a balance between the kind of false dichotomies that oftentimes are leveled, are, are given to us. You know, remember I said that the folks say, hey, you either pay the taxes or you don't. You're either this or you're that. And the AND campaign is kind of seeking to go beyond those dichotomies and to, and to say, hey, you know, we can do, we can, we can actually pursue life and advocate for life and, pr and promote life and protect life from womb to tomb. So, uh, so if you've never heard of them, you should check them out as well. Cool. Thanks, Micah. Yeah. Let's thank Micah for making it out and spending some time with us. Appreciate it. Bless you. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, well, I, uh, we're going to be done here. Um, and dinner is at five. It's four 30 now. Um, and, uh, uh, obviously we're done here and dinner's at five. So I have nothing else to say. See y'all at dinner. I'm going to say this now. I will say this now, and I'll say it again at dinner, but the, uh, your, your copies of Gentle Answer, they're yellow. They're on the stage at dinner. Please grab one of those. Take them with you. Uh, so they're up on the stage. Just grab one and take it with you. And definitely come thank Micah, but don't expect him to stay long. Don't be that person who won't let him leave.